Sorry about that. Good morning, everybody. Uh, today, as uh, Jeff announced earlier, we continue a series of sermons on signs and signs in John's Gospel. Signs is John's word for miracles. And John acknowledges that Jesus actually did a vast number of signs, but he himself picks out just seven for us to look at in detail in his gospel. John knows that we're, as his readers, he knows that we're familiar with the Jesus story and he assumes that we are believers. He writes his gospel for people who have already read at least one of the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark or Luke. Today we're going to read together sign number four, the feeding of the 5,000. And the interesting things about the interesting thing about sign number four is that it actually it's the first time that John has given us a sign that we already knew about from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other three signs he's told us about water into wine, the healing of the royal official's son, that healing at the pool of Bethsaida, they were miracles that were only recorded by John. Suddenly, in sign number four, we get a miracle we're already familiar with. In fact, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus to appear in all four Gospels. Now, we've just heard Mark's version of the miracle. Now we're going to read together John's version of this miracle, of this sign, which you can find in your pew Bible on page 865. Page 865, John chapter 6. As we look at this version, this uh, uh, telling of the story, we're going to see that actually um, John tells it quite differently from Mark. But what all four accounts of this event have in common is the following. They all agree on the following facts. Firstly, Jesus and his disciples had withdrawn to an isolated place somewhere on the shores of Lake Galilee. Secondly, even though they were somewhere isolated and very lonely, a great crowd of people had followed them. Thirdly, the reason why a great crowd had followed them was that Jesus was healing the sick. Miracle upon miracle, sign upon sign. Fourthly, a conversation occurs between Jesus and his disciples with respect to how this crowd, which is in a remote place, might be fed. Fifth, the disciples protest. They balk at the idea of feeding this crowd because such an endeavor would cost oh, at least half a year's wages. Six, the disciples nevertheless have at their disposal five loaves and two small fish. These items are distributed amongst the crowd, which is measured at 5,000 men. In other words, meaning 5,000 heads of households. The actual number of people fed is not recorded or estimated. Eight. At the conclusion, 12 baskets of leftovers are collected up by the disciples. That Them's the facts, all agreed by the four witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Concentrating now on John's account, which, as I said, is on page 865, chapter 6 of John's Gospel, Reading from verse 1, John sets the scene. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore 
of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish, Pas- the Jewish Passover festival was near. Well, these are new details. We didn't know them from the other accounts, but they're completely consistent with the other accounts. The terrain of the, around the Sea of Galilee is hilly. Uh, the Passover festival is in spring. Mark's account tells us that, were, that, that, were a lot of, that there was a lot of green grass, and that tells us in that part of the world that it was spring. But whenever John gives us details, his purpose is usually theological. They were on top of a mountain. What happens on the tops of mountains from an Old Testament perspective? Well, what happens on a mountainside, what happens on a mountaintop from an Old Testament perspective is that, is that that's where you meet God. And why mention the Passover? Well, because John is inviting a comparison. I'm not sure that John is meaning that we should compare the meal that we're about to read about with the Passover meal specifically, but I am sure, and it will become clearer and clearer, that John is definitely inviting us to think about this meal, this feeding of the 5,000, in the context of, in comparison with Israel's redemptive history, specifically comparing this meal with the stories of the Exodus, the time celebrated by the Passover festival. That time when God brought his people up out of the land of Egypt, up out of the land of slavery. And lastly, John records for us the detail that Jesus sat with his disciples. And uh, this tells us that, that Jesus was teaching his disciples. The teacher sits and students stand in ancient Israel. Uh, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Uh, now we get something different. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all agree that late in the day the disciples came to Jesus. Um, In their accounts, they take the initiative, asking Jesus to dismiss the crowd, to stop doing ministry, to send them away, so that they might have time to get to the villages in the surrounding countryside in order to secure food and lodging before sunset. Jesus then, according uh, to them, turns table on the disciples and says, you give them something to eat. Well, John tells us something slightly different. No, no, the initiative was Christ's. He knew right from the start what it was he wanted to do. The words, only to test him, hang in the air ominously. Stories of want or deficiency, lack of water, lack of food, lack of bread, lack of meat, those stories litter the big story of the Exodus. God bringing his people up out of the land of slavery, up out of the land of Egypt, into the wilderness by the hand of Moses, his servant. And deficiency in those stories was always a test. God sets up situations of short-lived but critical need 
in order to see how his people would behave, to sort out those who believed from those who had no faith, and to teach people to trust him. As Moses put it in Deuteronomy 8, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 past years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that a person does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Well, Jesus, in taking the initiative to test his disciples, is not assuming the role of Moses. No, he's assuming the role of God. Verse 7, Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Uh, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Well, it's a test, but the test completely baffles the disciples. Philip and Andrew are Jesus' two oldest disciples. I mean, meaning they're very first, his very first disciples. That They have to be, therefore, the pick of the bunch, you'd have thought, in terms of them being in the best possible position to pass the test. If, if, if Philip and Andrew can't get it, no one's going to get it. But Philip is completely overwhelmed by the enormity of the challenge. And, and Andrew, perhaps a small step of faith, he, he offers a starting point, the existence of some food, but he's completely unable to close the circle. He's completely unable to reach a solution from this starting point. And John alone here suddenly gives us some significant details. The bread and fish, now we find out, come from a boy. And by way of the Greek words used, we, we find out he's a little boy. He's a child, an inauspicious source. John alone tells us that the bread was barley bread. Now, it wasn't wheat bread. It wasn't made from wheat. Now, the, the Romans, they considered barley animal food uh, exclusively. But in Israel, poor people ate barley. Poor people ate barley bread. And John alone, um, of the witnesses, he tells he being a fisherman, he tells us that the fish were upseria, not the usual Greek word for fish. The word suggests garnish, a little bit of protein, like anchovies on pizza or sardines on toast. The meal was bread, but flavoured by way of two small dried or smoked fish. Five small barley loaves, two small fish. We're looking at a typical meal for one small and very poor Israelite family. We're looking at poverty and we're looking at a real crisis of deficiency. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. Well, a miracle happens. 
the fish and the bread, it just expands and expands and expands to the point where everyone's eaten all they could. They're, they're all stuffed silly. They've all had heaps to eat. No one is hungry. This is the miracle of the multiplication of fishes and loaves. But how we get there, how we reach this point, there is another key difference on the one hand between Matthew, Mark and Luke and between John on the other hand. In Matthew, Mark and Luke, who does the miracle? Disciples, that's right. The disciples do the miracle. Jesus gives them the, 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 the starting point and, and the bread and the fish is miraculously, is miraculously multiplied in their hands. They do the miracle. And in those three gospel stories, the story of the loaves and the fishes is actually all about discipleship. Jesus had given his disciples a mission. Feed the multitude. And Jesus was teaching them with mission comes authority. The authority to overcome adversity. They, the disciples, they already had the authority to feed the crowd because they already had Jesus' command. They had the power to do it because with command from Jesus comes the power to, to, do, it, to do it and to overcome adversity. But in John's gospel, the fish and the loaves stay in Christ's hands. He does the miracle. It is the same story, but John is changing focus so that we see something that we may have missed. It was, it was there, all right, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but now is, John is going to spell it out for us. Because John has taken a familiar story, which actually is the Exodus. They all grew up on this stuff, the wilderness wanderings, the demands, the grumblings, the, the need for, for water, bread, meat. But he's re-dramatizing it. And the key question, if we were Jews, the key question would be, who gets the role of Moses? We might expect Jesus to land uh, the role of Moses. But actually that role was given to Philip, wasn't it? Philip is the one who, like Moses, says, what on earth? Where are we going to get enough food from? No, Jesus doesn't land the role of Moses, but rather is cast as God. Jesus takes the initiative both to create the deficiency and then to solve it, to provide for the people, just like God in Numbers 11. And John's point is this. John's point is this. The one who accompanied Israel in the wilderness all those 40 years as a mostly invisible presence, the one who tested Israel but also provided for her, the one who actually satisfied all of her desires with good things, this one is now visibly present in the flesh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The, the, the word has become flesh and is tabernacling right in front of them. The one they already know. This is him in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. Man does not live, a person does not live on bread alone, but rather on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. Verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat... He said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. 
So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. In, in all four Gospels, it's clearly tremendously important that we see that even after many thousands of people had had as much to eat as they could, there was still enough left over to fill 12 baskets of leftovers. Only John points out that the leftovers were specifically collected because Jesus commanded this to happen, and likewise he commanded, let nothing be wasted. What are the baskets about? What does it mean? Well, I don't really know. But the testimony of the leftovers, it echoes that past story of the Exodus, wherein in the desert God always, answered need with a superabundance, a superabundance of manna, a superabundance of meat, a superabundance of water. Now, again, we see a superabundance, just like in that story we know so well. So to hear the sign of the testimony of the 12 baskets is unmissable and unmistakable. This is no trick. Why 12 baskets? Well, perhaps so that each disciple might have one. But in in the Bible, God always works on the principle of abundance. If God always provides abundantly, generously, then why does he command that nothing be wasted? Again, I'm not really sure, but being confident that God will always provide generously as something that is inherently a part of his own character, he is always surprisingly generous, This isn't an invitation to extravagance, self-indulgence, or greed. The provision of food is grace, an undeserved gift. And so we always treat it with respect. Verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Uh, What we see here is something that we we see over and over again. Uh, That is that miracles are difficult to understand and easy to misunderstand. Miracles are difficult. On that day, several thousand people knew that they had witnessed, experienced, and been saved from hunger by a miracle. They all went to bed that night believing in miracles because they'd seen one and they knew that they'd seen one. But they didn't understand it. Yes, Jesus is the prophet, the one written about by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Yes, Jesus is the king, the Messiah. But having seen that much, they want to take Jesus by force. In other words, rather than responding by surrendering their lives to Jesus in order that they might serve him which is what a believing response would have looked like, they respond by, way, by wanting to make Jesus surrender to them in order that he might serve their agenda. It's an upside-down response. They do not understand that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus Christ is Lord, God with us. Their blindness is unbelief rather than belief. Uh, sure, they see the miracle. Sure, they believe in miracles but they do not understand it. And in response to this unbelief, Jesus withdraws. 
and he withdraws not only from the crowd, but he also withdraws from the disciples, retreating to a mountain by himself. The sign is, after all, we've been told, the sign is a test, and everyone failed it. The miracle confounded them. The miracle continues to confound. Uh, For us in our day and age, the pressing question that people ask is, how is this possible? And many uh, biblical um, uh, commentators assume that it is not possible, that it's impossible, and that therefore the story must be taken figuratively. And some have argued that the generosity of the little boy in offering all that he had exposed the greed and selfishness of the adults who promptly shared all that they had as well. And you know what? When everybody did that, it turned out there, were, there was enough to go around. What a happy story. And the miracle then that took place was a miracle in the human heart. Well, that interpretation cannot be regarded as serious for multiple reasons, not least of which is the fact that we do not know by which means the ownership of the fish and bread was transferred from the small boy to the disciples. The disciples probably bought it. It's the most likely explanation. And you never build an interpretation of a story upon a detail that's been blanked by the author. We don't know how the fish and the bread became the disciples' property, but they probably bought it. Others have figured out that the meal of fish and bread, oh, well, it must have been received as a sacramental meal, with each person getting a tiny, minuscule amount. And the bonhomie, the the, the fellowship, the, the comradeship, warmed people's heart and they went home feeling satisfied. Again, this cannot be taken seriously. But many modern Western thinkers are regularly offended by what seems to them to be a breaking the laws of physics. Is this breaking the laws of physics? No, it's a creation miracle. A few kilograms or a few grams of bread and fish on that day became hundreds or possibly thousands of kilograms of bread and fish. Matter is just a form of energy. And so the multiplication of fish and bread can happen scientifically. It just would have required a lot of energy in the order of 90,000 trillion kilojoules per kilogram of fish and bread by way of E equals MC squared. Theologically, of course, it can happen. It's not impossible. It just requires that the God who was there at the beginning is now there on the shores of Lake Galilee. The God who created everything from nothing was there again on the shores of Lake Galilee. That's what this miracle is telling us about Jesus. God makes something from nothing. Jesus makes something from nothing. Jesus is therefore God with us. Um, Let's summarize and conclude. Here's my first point. We live on a planet of superabundance and in an inadequate world. We live in an inadequate world. The circumstances of life routinely place us in temporary crises of deficiency. For us, these crises might be about not enough work, not enough time, not enough money, not enough friends, not enough help, not enough attention perhaps even occasionally not enough food, and we're tested by such times. And the tests 
are often excruciating for us, aren't they? Because not only does the deficiency test our faith in a loving, caring God who is capable of meeting all of our needs, but also because in the face of such a test, we see that we ourselves are inadequate, unable to meet our own needs, and unable to answer the needs of needy people around us. It's excruciating. Now, please don't think, please don't hear me saying that if you encounter deficiency, there's something wrong with your faith. Heaven forbid that you think I'm saying that. Please also don't think that I'm saying, heaven forbid that you hear me saying that material superabundance is a sign of spiritual maturity. I'm definitely not saying that. Heaven forbid. I'm saying that deficiency is a normal part of life in an inadequate world. This sign shows us that Jesus is our adequacy. In an inadequate world, Jesus is our sufficiency. In fact, our world is adequate. This planet is adequate to meeting all of our needs if and only if we depend not on the world nor on ourselves, but rather solely on God in Jesus Christ. Only then will there be sufficiency. Only in Jesus do we find sufficiency. Because to say that in another way, Jesus wants to meet our every need. And Jesus can meet our every need, super abundantly, but only as we trust him. That was my first point. Second point is that this is true for us, not only as individuals, but also as a local community, St. Barnabas Anglican Church, and as a global community, the global church. With Christ, we are able to meet the needs of this world and the deficiency crises of this planet. We are able to meet them. Famines in Ethiopia, starvation in Yemen, hyperinflation in Venezuela, homelessness in Australia, these problems are nothing at all in God's eyes. And we already have everything we need to meet them in our hands. To meet crises with superabundance in the name of Jesus. But if we stand around wringing our hands, mumbling, well, here is a child with a $20 note, but what good is that in the face of such need? Then we have completely failed to understand to whom it is that we belong. And lastly, when we do trust Jesus, and we do experience Christ's miraculous provision and the superabundance of his generous nature, and we, many of us have experienced miraculous provision from time to time, Many of us have experienced extraordinary miracles of provision. When that happens, we will be tempted. We will be tempted to come and take Jesus and make him king by force. In other words, rather than wanting to be used by Jesus, we will be tempted to use Jesus. Uh, Christians, individuals, denominations, they do this routinely. Um, building all kinds of edifices, schools, vast numbers of schools, hospitals. Now that we've discovered the power in his name, we're going to use Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He walks away. I just find that incredibly encouraging that Jesus just walks away. He will not be used. 
Because when churches and denominations do that, it's because they are giving in to temptations of power. It's all about money and control and influence in this world. And Jesus is not about that. He's not that kind of a king. Well, as my final statement, I'd just like to say I'm very aware that I have offered you an inadequate sermon. Uh, uh, This um, uh, miracle has tested me and found me inadequate. But hopefully, because there's so much in there and there's so much I don't understand um, and there's so much more to talk about, basket load. But I trust that as you trust Jesus... Uh, And as we trust Jesus, uh, it will nourish us super abundantly. And may the Lord be with you all. Amen.